Welcome to Conversations, a podcast by Christ Presbyterian Church of Auburn, where we get a chance to sit down and have a conversation with Pastor Zellner and learn how God's Word applies to our lives. Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Conversations Podcast. Uh, This past week, we went over an overview of what baptism looks like, and now we are going to more specifically infant baptism. This is obviously a hot topic. I think many arguments have been had over this one discussion. And so, Pastor Zoner, before we get into anything, I want to maybe share a little bit of my story. So, I come from a Roman Catholic church growing up and was baptized as a uh, as an infant, and then went to a non-denominational church in high school and was baptized twice there. Oh, oh two, two more. Okay. <laughs> two, two more times. So sprinkled, dunked, flipped, mm-hmm. all of it. I'm That's covered. Correct. That's correct. And I saw baptism as a, in the beginning, as more kind of just a traditional rite done by the church, mm-hmm. and then in high school as a rededication of my faith mm-hmm. almost. Yes. And so now I'm working at a Presbyterian church, mm-hmm. and I remember when I went to uh, first uh, Presbyterian of Opelika with one of my buddies one time, and I saw a child being baptized. I whispered to him and I said, I thought this was only done at Roman Catholic churches. <laughs> so I think a lot of people come to this issue and are really confused about where it comes from because you don't see, I guess, super explicit content in the New Testament regarding infants being baptized. So I would love to hear first, initially, where you think this all comes from and the basis of your argument with infant Sure, baptism. yeah. And Will, I think that's an important place to begin. Thanks for thanks for hosting the podcast. I'm thankful to be with you all today to talk about this. The, uh, the, the basis of all of what we're talking about with regards to this, this uh, issue of infant baptism is a basis that is rooted back in the Old Testament. And so... Um, when you grew up in the in the Roman Catholic Church, there uh, they are practicing what the what the church has historically practiced from the from the time of the apostles, and and I'll explain in just a minute why we know that. Um, so you saw that, and then and and in your presumption that hey, this is a right that the church exercises, your view was completely different when when you're older and you said I need to be submerged, I, and and in being dunked, what you're saying is. I've actually trusted in Christ as my Savior, and I want to rededicate my life or to to dedicate my life to Christ. Uh, I know of a quite a few people who've been baptized multiple times because of that, uh, and 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 so at the heart of this, I think you begin with this question: Who is speaking in these sacraments? When we talked a few weeks back about the Lord's Supper, I, I made the point: I mean, this is God making. A promise. This is Jesus when he says, this is my body given for you. Uh, do this in remembrance of me. This is God making making his statement. So when we say that that this is a, um, or I'm going to say, I'm going to contend that this is a spiritual covenant. And the reason I'm making that contention is that this is God making a declaration. And he, made, he began to make that declaration at the very beginning, all, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. As soon as man falls into sin... Uh, God makes a promise, Genesis 3.15, that there will be a, a, a seed who will come and crush the head of the woman. 
every time in the midst of mankind's sin, God is the one who has to make promises. Otherwise, the condition is hopeless. Adam and Eve are shivering behind the, the bushes, trying to cover themselves with fig leaves. The whole situation is really uh, embarrassing and sad. So when we get to Abraham, Genesis 15, uh, we recognize that, that God comes to Abraham in Genesis 12, and he says, I want you to get up and go to Ur of the Chaldees. Abraham does that. Uh, that's viewed as, uh, as obedience uh, by God. Later in Genesis 15, Abraham's been waiting uh, for 20-something years at that point. He still doesn't have a son, and God made a promise to give him a, a descendant. And, and he says, I'm afraid it's going to have to be my slave, Eleazar of Damascus, uh, to which God says, no, I'm going to give you a son. I promise to give you a son. Take a look outside. Go outside and look at the sky. And he says, all those stars in the sky... I will give you descendants as many as the stars in the sky, as many as the sand on the seashore. And then what Genesis 15 says is Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, which means that that God is suddenly occupying in this promise a, uh, a desire for his people to embrace those promises. And he's clearly not just talking about a seed. He's also talking about... Could you, could you be a person who would believe me by faith? Genesis chapter 17, God gives to Abraham this sign of circumcision. And in Genesis chapter 17, he, he says that the promise, Abraham, that I'm giving in the sign of circumcision is not just for you. He says, uh, Genesis 17, 7, I'll establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and to your offspring after you. Now, in, the, in and around this entire passage, he's promising lots of things. But the biggest thing he's promising is a relationship. He says, I'm going to be a God to you and to your offspring after you. Uh, and and, and what's, what's contingent upon that? You, you embrace this sign of circumcision, and by embracing the sign of circumcision, you're saying, I really do believe you, Lord, to be making a spiritual promise. Right? So when we talk about infant baptism, we have to recognize that God has always made promises that are spiritual. Um, and then we transition to the fact that those spiritual promises are seen in, in uh, Romans chapter 4. Paul says in Romans chapter 4 that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Uh, and then he, he goes on to say um, down in verse 9, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? It was not after, it was before he was circumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was yet uncircumcised. And then Paul makes this profound statement. The reason God did that was to make Abraham the father of all who believed without being circumcised. Now, the point I'm making is simply this. Uh, the spiritual nature of, of God in relationship with his people has always been the substance of, uh, of infant baptism and circumcision before that. So go ahead and let's talk a little bit more. So just to uh, kind of catch everyone up and make sure I'm understanding you right, Pastor Zoner, is that what you're saying is that in the Old Testament, 
God makes a promise with Abraham, and the sign of this promise is circumcision. And he tells him that, because you believe in me, I'm giving to you my righteousness, and I'm sealing this promise with circumcision. And now this promise isn't just for you, Abraham, Mm -hmm. it's for your children also. That's right. And so now in the New Testament, we are connected to Abraham and God's promise with Abraham. And so in the same way that people were circumcised in the Old Testament and their children were circumcised, now people are baptized in the New Testament, and that's the New Testament sign and also their children. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And 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 so I'm going to say in just a few minutes, I mean, the New Testament writers, we're just going to take Peter and Paul as, as apostles of the church, uh, they presume this theology. They recognize that that would be, uh, if Christianity flows out of the promises that were made to Abraham, then there's got to be some continuity between the, the old and that which is new. And so the continuation clearly shows that the Old Testament promises are not just physical promises, right? Because that was yep. one thing for me when I was coming to this infant baptism um, discussion was I remember studying and learning these things and thinking, well, I thought circumcision was just about being an Israelite. Yeah. You know, I thought it right. was just having your your uh, your passport of saying that you're from the nation of Israel. Sure. In the New Testament, it's all about faith. And so, mm-hmm. you know... That yeah. I, I can see how people would think that those there's a discontinuation sure. between a physical sign to now a spiritual sign, and what you're saying is that it was not a physical sign. Circumcision yeah. always meant a spiritual reality. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to be a god to you and to your children after you. And and then of course there's times in the Old Testament that people um, that people have borne the sign, but they're actually not living as those who have who have a changed heart. And so the call, the summons of that old symbol of circumcision was uh, learn what it means to live as uh, as one who has been transformed. And the circumcision is a bloody picture, right? It was a cutting away of the flesh. And the promise that was being made, how in the world is he going to be a god to, to wicked sinners? Only because he would be the one who's faithful to cut away our sin and throw it off. Uh, that, was the, that was the spiritual picture that was being spoken through Abraham. So do you want to transition now into the New Testament picture and sure. go into a little bit sure. deeper about yeah. it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think from there, it's the basis of the New Covenant. And so if we were to use Galatians chapter 3, um, we recognize in Galatians chapter 3 that the, the apostle picks up the concept of this old covenant, and he says that's what's also going on in the New Covenant. Galatians 3, verse 15 to 18 says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Now, first of all, it says covenants don't go away. When God makes covenants, he keeps them, and they don't, they don't, they don't dissolve. They may transform in their giving, but they don't dissolve. Now he says, it doesn't say to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. Um, And he's making the statement, it didn't go from grace to works, how somebody's saved. It's always been of grace. But then he says the the promise he was making wasn't ultimately going to be fulfilled because lots of people got their foreskins cut. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's not how it was done. The promise was going to be fulfilled by God's offspring, singular, 
who is Jesus, says Paul. So now what we recognize is that is that in the New Testament, what we're doing is Abraham was looking forward to somehow God providing an offspring who was going to be the true offspring. We now know that offspring is Christ. And Christ, who also took on the sign of circumcision, turned and instituted baptism, in, in as we talked about last time, in Matthew 28, to say, take this sign on into the church so that the sign of God's cleansing, it's no longer a sign of cutting away the flesh. Now it's a sign that says, I, the Lord God, am the God who will have to do the cleansing if we're going to have a relationship. Right. I think another passage that I was thinking of is Colossians chapter 2. Yeah. Um, starting at verse 11, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. Essentially, Paul is saying that there's no more need to be circumcised because now you can be baptized. That's right. And so oh, the yeah. same way in which circumcision was applied with the promises to you and to your children, mm-hmm. we get in Pentecost, Peter, this promises to you and to your children, baptized baptism to the believer and to the believer's children. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about Pentecost, right? Because sure. that's the emergence of the new covenant. Mm-hmm. Uh, Acts chapter 2, a lot of people will go to touch on that, Pastor Zoner. I think that would be helpful Yeah. Now, well, I think, you know, um, what I, the point I was making earlier about the, the apostles presume this theology of the family. Um, and by presuming that theology of the family, I think you recognize that immediately. Now, if there's going to be a massive change between... Uh, the way God makes promises in the past and the way God makes promises in the future. Acts chapter 2 is really the place you're going to do that if you're, if you're Peter. So if, if God's going to quit working through families and begin working only into individuals and have this, um, you know, have some sort of anxious bench where nervous sinners come down front, repent of their sins, and get, get cleansed by water, um, that's where you'd do that, right? But um, what, what Peter, in fact, does in Acts chapter 2, at verse 38 and 39, um, he says, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this is what he says. He picks up the Old Testament. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Uh I think that chapter uh, chapter 2, verse 39, uh, is the place where if you were going to have discontinuity between the way God used to deal with his people and the way God now deals with his people, that's where it would have happened. But Peter decides instead to quote Genesis 17, 7. The promise is for you and for your children and your children's children. Now, what's the promise? Um, so the Roman Catholic Church would say the promise is, well, we're washing away original sin by this sacrament. But that's not historically what was happening in the early church, and it's not what we are practicing when we have infant baptism in a Presbyterian church. We're not saying we're washing away original sin. We're not saying this water gives this child salvation. We're saying the parents are embracing the promises of God, which were made to Abraham a long time ago. I'll be a God to you and to your children and your children's children. So what ends up happening then in, in this concept, this, this presumption of, the, of this God working through families, is that the parents' faith is embracing the promise that God has given. 
And then thereafter, every time we baptize an infant, we're not reminded of somebody rededicating their life to Jesus, which is what would happen in a context of, of only believers' baptism. We're reminded that God is the one who constantly makes promises of salvation. And so a little tiny baby is, is water is poured on that child. Uh, the way it blesses those who are present is they are physically reminded that water symbolizes the blood of Christ, which washes away our sins. And so in a very real sense, a baptism is not just for the parents and it's not just for the infant. It's actually for all the participants in worship to wash, to watch that God is making that promise. And we, by faith, are embracing that promise. Right. And one thing that we talked about is how this theology of the family, that God sort of sets apart this child. Mm-hmm. I was thinking of First um, Corinthians 7. I think that's worth bringing sure, up. Sure, yeah. First Corinthians 7, the, the Apostle Paul is, is talking about uh, this this correlation in, in the, the the significance of the family, and he says, he says, I don't want you to. It's in the context of marriage and divorce. He says, I don't want you to divorce. If you come to faith in Christ, don't divorce your unbelieving spouse. Stay with them, and and then he he get, he basically says that that spouse, in a sense, is holy. Uh, likewise, in the same way, he also connects in in uh, seven. 1 Corinthians seven fourteen that the child himself of that one believing parent is holy. Uh, so then, then we have to uh, rescue what people think holy means from what it actually means. Holy doesn't mean sinless. Holy doesn't mean perfect. Holy means set apart by God. And so how is it possible that if one believing parent comes to faith in Christ, that the child is holy? Well, it's holy because God is setting apart it, setting it apart in the context of the way he's always dealt through families. Mom or dad has come to faith in Christ. The child is now raised in the context of the blessings of this covenant relationship. And a believing parent then begins to pass on the truth of these, uh, of these promises. And so we baptize that child of the one believing parent. Uh, I've had occasion over the years as a pastor to baptize a child of a, of a single parent. And that, that single parent is standing there just as if there was a, a two of them standing there. That single parent is declaring, I believe God to be faithful to his promises. And the congregation is likewise saying the same thing. And, and what's the promise? God's the one who cleanses us of our sin. Right. And so I guess that answers the whole, what's the benefit of baptizing a child? Because that was another thing yeah. that I, I always wondered is people say, you're welcoming this kid into the covenant community. And I remember, you know, almost thinking, well, what what benefit is being welcomed into mm-hmm. the covenant community? Yeah. But it seems as if you're saying is that this is a chance for the family to say, God has a promise for this family mm-hmm. and is blessing this family. So we have a physical sign to show that God has set this family apart for yeah. his purposes. That's exactly right. And it's so it's blessing in that way, not just the parents who are embracing that promise and that sign and uh, but it's also blessing all of those who are watching and so you know in the, in the context of the of a church I anticipate that the child who's being baptized today is going to watch a uh, hundred other baptisms through the course of his childhood and every time that promise is made to another child we we would say the the Bible calls you to embrace the realities of this promise to embrace the substance of this promise, and that is the offspring, 
that the Bible was always pointing to was Jesus. And so we're embracing Christ by faith. We're encouraging our children to embrace Christ by faith. And if you embrace Christ by faith, says the Scripture, your sins will be washed away uh, as water pours over the, the child. Right. So. I think, so just to recap, sure. what we see in the early chapters of the Bible is God makes a promise with Abraham and says this, this promise, based upon your profession of faith, mm-hmm. is that I will put my blessing upon you and to your children. Mm-hmm. And so now in the New Testament, the New Testament sign is baptism, and so Peter says this promise is for you and for your children. And so by sure. baptizing these children, we welcome them into this theology of the family and say God's blessing and, and promise is upon them. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then, and then, so sometimes people will say, well, you know, you're making an argument from silence. Uh, and I, that's actually one of my favorite um, disagreements because I don't think I'm the one making the argument from silence. Uh, I'm actually making an argument from continuity, and I think the Scripture is making that argument, which is why uh, in Acts chapter 16, we have two different accounts of household baptisms. We've got entire households, and all we know is that one is converted. Uh, So we get this Philippian jailer who's converted, Acts chapter 16, verses 14 and 15. We get Lydia who's converted... uh, 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 sorry, Lydia is converted in, in 15 and 16, and her children are, and her entire household is baptized. And then later, the Philippian jailer is converted, and his entire household is baptized. The Bible could have made it very specific if they wanted to. The Philippian jailer received Jesus Christ by faith. The Philippian jailer was baptized. His household also received Jesus Christ by faith. His household was also baptized. Paul does the exact same thing at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 16. He says, I, I, I've, I've baptized some of you, but I don't think I, I've really baptized that many of you. Uh, best I can remember, I think I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Other than that, I can't remember who else. Well, these, these comments, these household comments are not throwaway comments. They're built into the fabric of this theology of the family that God's always worked through families. And so our our contention then when we take a look at the scriptures is that a long time ago God made a promise and and even today God makes promises and if we're going to be faithful to embrace those promises we just want to simply embrace the sacrament through which he gives those promises and they're basically because sacraments are physical pictures signs and seals of God's covenant of grace and I think one thing that's important to bring up is Obviously, we, we believe this is important because it shows that God is faithful to His promises, but also you know, believing in infant baptism, infant baptism is not essential for becoming a member at Christ Presbyterian Church. No, that's Church. right. That's right. In fact, we have, we have lots of people who, who probably are at various places in their, in their understanding or even their belief in this particular doctrine. So it's not essential for membership in the church. Uh, it's not essential uh, for being a believer. Um, so it, it's uh, there's lots of people who might have differing views on this, but uh, we just teach what we think the Scripture teaches, and then people can be in various places on this and study on their own and pray and ask for the Lord's guidance and help. Well, I hope that you can see, if you're listening to this, the biblical basis for infant baptism. We certainly understand the difficulties that can come with a discussion like this, and we so are so appreciative of the time, Pastor Zellner, for helping work through some of yeah, these things. Yeah, thank you so. for talking through this with me. It's great to see you. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Y'all have a good day.